Welcome to Making More Money for You with Magnus Carter. Whether you feel that you don't have enough money to start investing or are under the preconceived notion that investing is only for the wealthy, Magnus and his expert guests are here to help you. Now here is your host, Magnus Carter. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's been a week already. I can't believe it. The time is just flying by as we get to the end of the year. Uh, I want to definitely take a special thank, uh, a moment to thank my guest last week about personal branding, uh, Jesse Clark of The Beautiful Badass Life. Uh, it was a pleasure having her on and actually what it means to actually do branding, how she actually came across as a personal brand and how she actually lives her life uh, to incorporate the branding into all facets, uh, which brings me back to this month, this show today. We... Uh, this was another show that was booked a couple months ago <laughs> already, and uh, I met Trey through uh, a previous guest. I, I met him through Tommy Breedlove, and we got connected, and Trey has a very unique way of running a business, his business, and before we get into that, Trey, welcome to the show. Magnus, good to see you. Thanks so much for having me, man. Absolutely. I Like I was saying before, I can't believe it's been a couple months already. It just feels like maybe a week ago we just talked. In the end of the year always flies. You've got so much stuff going on and uh, I'm with you. It's like I woke up and here we are uh, today. So I'm glad to be with you though. Oh, thank you very much. And, and it's much appreciated to take the time out as, as we are busy trying to close out the year. And uh, on top of that, we always have these holidays that <laughs> kind of interrupt a little, little bit of a, you know, the end of the year, end of the year sequence that we get ready for the following for the next year. So Trey, can you, um, Let's before we get into the show, can we have a little bit more information about you, uh, where you've been, uh, what you've been doing, and uh, what, and where do you see yourself actually doing? Maybe even next year. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, Trey Taylor and I run a, a family office, a single family office for my family to manage uh, four generations of wealth called Threadneedle. And, uh, you know, that, that business has come about relatively recently as we had some um, liquidity events that came about starting in about 2019 and early 2020. And so we had a piece of beachfront uh, property in Jacksonville, Florida that we had held for about 40 years uh, that got sold uh, sort of as a surprise to us. Uh, we got a very strong offer on that. And uh, so we sold that. Uh, we also um, uh, were early investors in Airbnb which went public in um, uh, December of 19, I think it might've been January of 20. And so that provided some liquidity. And then uh, we actually lost a family member uh, around that same time that had a lot of life insurance and a lot of liquidity in their own estate. And so what we decided to do as a, as a, as a family was to contribute all of those sort of assets into one working structure. Uh, the idea being there that we could be optimal in the way that we uh, uh, made financial decisions we could also be um, sort of legacy stewards. So we didn't create all of the wealth that sort of came into our hands in that uh, couple of month period, but we wanted to be good stewards for the next three or four generations that were coming online. And, uh, and so we all, each of the generations decided to contribute those assets into a common management structure that we call thread. So it's a family office. Yep. Wow. That's, that's a lot. And, a lot of uh, great success for you. Uh, congratulations on that in various in such a short amount of time. Uh, so 
when you when we talk about family businesses, we're not talking about the Godfather. We're not talking about any any uh, <laughs> any mafia type of thing going on here. <laughs> Depends on who you ask, I think. But yeah, in our situation, we're definitely not talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, that's definitely good to know. We we clarify that because when we hear family, we don't associate family with business. We tried. Everybody keeps them separated. So how is it that you came to the conclusion or the notion of actually putting both of them together? Well, I was born into the family business. And so we, we always, you know, my grandfather started our business and we always worked inside that business. So all three of his sons worked inside the business. My brother actually worked inside the business, uh, which was an insurance and financial planning business uh, for, for very many years, you know, a couple of generations uh, I went a different route, prompted, you know, a lot by the experience of the family. Uh, and I went a different route and became much more of a venture capitalist. I have a law degree. You know, we we were trying to sort of professionalize the operations of the family. But we always think in terms of uh, what can this generation do for the next generation. And, uh, you know, we just sort of have that uh, common commitment to one another. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, go our different ways. So we have some members of the family that don't uh, work in the family business. They don't participate in the family office, uh, but they still get invited to Christmas and Thanksgiving, you know? So um, it's not that, you know, it's not like it's an exclusive uh, type thing. We, we, we just uh, have some that participate and some that don't. Okay. And when you, did you realize that you were going to be coming back into the the family business or never leave the business when you decided to go for, to schooling? No. Yeah. So my dad actually encouraged me to go and sort of stake my own claim. You know, okay. he said, don't, don't kind of come into the business and do what we do for a living. You've got different talents and you've got, um, you know, you've got uh, opportunities that can take you in different places. But unfortunately, uh, after I had completed law school and uh, had done my venture capital work and actually was working in-house at really large Fortune 100 companies, um, doing corporate development M&A and investments and acquisitions and those kinds of things, um, my dad actually uh, passed away very suddenly from what we now know was COVID. Uh, back then, it was called SARS-2, and it was super unexpected. He was only 52 years old. And we didn't, at that point, have a really well-articulated um, succession plan. And so it sort of fell to me as the only person that had, had run businesses and worked in the C-suite of businesses to sort of come home and, and take over things and make sure that everybody was you know, protected in the family. And so um, that was uh, 18 years ago now. And um, you know, I haven't looked back since then. And, we, and we've grown that business that I joined. Uh, invested in lots of other businesses, over a hundred other businesses, uh, and uh, we do all kinds of different um, uh, deals and uh, you know different kind of investment structures. So uh, it's been it's been a good journey. Okay, it sounds like a a very good journey journey, and definitely not your typical journey for actually growing a business, especially when you're dealing with family. Now, when someone actually thinks about going into business with their family. Were there ground rules that were already in place and and change as the the company change as the company evolved? Yeah, I'm sure there were uh, prior to sort of my arrival, but um, you know, all the time it has been one member of the family that has owned the core business. 
And so uh, that that remains the case even today. My grandfather owned the business, but he had he had employment, if you will, uh, for his three kids, right? And then my father sort of was selected as the person to inherit and to purchase um, uh, the other people out of the business when he took it over. When he passed away, my brother and I inherited it together. And then when my brother passed away in 19, uh, I inherited his portion of the business as well. So it has sort of always been um, that it, it belongs to one person. I think it works because we steward that business to benefit other people. Um, uh, and, you know, everyone sort of, I guess you sort of have a claim that, hey, I'm, I'm ready and willing to work. Can I show up for a job? And we will usually find a role for somebody. It isn't the case that you can show up and say, I'm ready for a check, but I don't want to work. <laughs> that doesn't work for us. That's not part of our ethos. But, um, but yeah, we, we try to sort of cast a wide net. And that doesn't only apply to members of my family, but people that work in those businesses that we own now often bring their own family members into the businesses as well. Yeah. So, okay. Now that, that, uh, can definitely be a segue into the next thing is the environment. Um, now, are all these businesses uh, ran uh, in different buildings, or is it all mainly one building that runs everything in, of all the businesses and then flows down? Yeah, so um, I guess you could think of it in terms of wherever my brain is is the headquarter okay. of the business, if you will. So we do some customer service out of our sort of home office uh, in our hometown. And, uh, you know, that's where we keep the QuickBooks account and the folders and, you know, the things necessary from a documentation standpoint to run the business. But the strategy and the execution, uh, you know, sort of exists wherever the person doing the work is. Yeah. Okay. Now, for someone to actually start a family business like yours, how how difficult would that be to actually um, not so much mimic, but put in place what you, you're doing right now? I don't know that it's that difficult at all. I think uh, 97% of businesses are classified in the U.S. as small business, which means under 100 employees. <laughs> and that's not my definition of a small business at all. Um, and I think the number is a lot higher than that. But, but, you know, and most of those small businesses are some form of family business, right? So maybe it's a spouse and a spouse working. Maybe it's a father-son, mother-son, something like that kind of business. But um, you know, most businesses, I think, in this country are family businesses uh, from that standpoint. To, to transition from family business to family office uh, is a different kind of, of transition. And the family office concept was pioneered uh, early on by the Rockefellers who said, hey, we have, we have a lot of capital and we, we want to still um, maintain our central holdings in the oil business and the refinery business. But we have excess capital, where can we put it to work where it's centrally managed? Our interests are centrally managed. And so that was the, that was the formation of the family office concept. Their family office is still in existence now, five or six generations, if not more later. Uh, and a lot of us use that as sort of the, uh, the template by which we build the office. And so sometimes you have, um, uh, you know, investment advisors, fund managers, uh, you know, as as your holdings grow, you put people alongside those things. Uh, some of these offices are quite big. I have a friend that runs a $450 million uh, family office, and he has a concierge service inside the office where if somebody wants to borrow the jet 
or go to the beach house or something of that nature, then you you don't call a travel agent. You call a lady that works for the family office and she schedules it and handles it for you. That's not something that we do, but some of the larger families, you know, if you have a hundred members of the family, how do you share those assets equitably? Um, that's something that they do as well. So, um, um, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, we're definitely, uh, you know, doing the work and laying the groundwork so that we have those kinds of nice to have problems in the future. <laughs> yeah, they definitely sound like a, uh, a good expansion and something that's nice to have. Now, when you're looking at opportunities like this and you're looking to expand out, uh, instead of actually partnering with a company, an outside source of, of the family office. Now, do you, instead of doing that, do you weigh the options of actually starting up your own entity up like that? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so when we, when we sort of had the idea originally, we said, you know, we, this is not something that we've ever done. And so we're not going to be experts at it. Why don't we bring in the experts? Okay. And we interviewed about 11 with what is called multifamily offices, where you plug your assets into a, a common management structure. And we were pretty thoroughly unimpressed by what uh, was on offer for the prices that were coming in. Very much of it was on an asset allocation model, which I thought was very out of step with the goals that we were trying to achieve. Um, meaning that they would say things like, oh, well, for this size office, you need to put 80% in the you know, public stock market and 20% can be divided into blah, blah, blah. And I just thought that that was, um, that that was not growth oriented nearly as much as it was sort of maintenance oriented. And that's not who we are as a family. Uh, we got very close with one or two offices, but then eventually just decided that um, the complexity of what we were trying to put together was not that great. It didn't make sense, um, you know, to pay multiple six figures mm -hmm. a year to be uh, in those uh, structures yet. And so, um, so we didn't go that way. I stepped out of my management role in the operating business, uh, joined the family office as sort of the sole employee at this stage, uh, and have done that now for three years. Just recently, we hired a back-end provider to manage some of the public investments and to do some of the more complicated tax planning and structural planning issues. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's that definitely a lot to weigh in there, especially when you're trying to figure as you, as you were trying to do with the family office is make it generational because you, you do have to plan for almost every contingency out there. And I'm sure you didn't plan on for the, the lovely thing we had it back in 2020. We did not. And so uh, that was quite scary, but also quite lucky because we had pulled all of our assets out of the public markets uh, oh, okay. just by almost by accident uh, in, in getting together and trying to restructure everything. So we had very, very little exposure to the public markets as they fell over the past uh, several years. Uh, we've waded back in, but not in any sort of major way. And uh, largely that's because I'm in a couple of study groups with people that run very big family offices. And, you know, I, I'm not smart. I just follow what smart people do, you know? And so I'm watching how they put their money to work. And that's the kind of thing that we're trying to imitate uh, where we can. Yeah. And yes, you're actually using money as a tool to make more money for yourselves. Am I correct? Exactly that? right. That's the only thing that money really is supposed to do, isn't it? 
you know, I heard someone say once that if my dollar is only doing one thing, I've got too lazy a dollar and it needs to be disciplined. And so um, as you learn that, that's really the first steps on wealth. Uh, because, you know, earlier in my life, you know, I wanted to earn a paycheck so that I could pay bills. And when you when you realize that earning a paycheck to pay bills is a dead end street, like you will do that for your entire life. And then after you're gone, the IRS will present your family with a bill. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a dismaying situation. And so uh, I very much wanted to build something where the wealth would build more wealth. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's, you know, I, I did read most of your book. I, I'm halfway through your book about that. And it did, it does talk about that, especially in the, in the three things that a good CEO does. And one of them that you did talk about is find out this, what the smallest person is doing and then tailor it to what you needed to do. You know, it, yeah. it, it's not just black and white, uh, um, because your your circumstances aren't what their circumstances were, and you actually adapted it and and are growing from it. Yeah, that's exactly what my model is. I'm a huge Charlie Munger fan. You know, Charlie Munger is a Warren Buffett's partner, mm-hmm. and and Munger is this uh, sort of wealth, this oracle of um, of mental models of these frameworks or these templates, and you know he might read you know, what happened in the Greek city-states in 600 BC and find a parallel in what Gillette Razor's business is doing tomorrow. And, um, you know, it's simply that learning from what others have learned means I don't have to reconstruct, you know, the model every single time I come across a challenge. And um, same thing, that's why I get into study groups and masterminds as intensely as I do, is because I want to see how other people respond to challenges before those challenges are mine. Oh, absolutely. And with a, with a wide array of people that you are interacting with, your experience grows. And that's one of the things that this show is all about is experiencing new things, doing the, the overlooked things, the, the dumb things that people bypass and leave money on the table for. And, uh, Go after it and see what see what it does. Sometimes it doesn't pan out, and that's okay too. Because now you understand why. As long as you understand why it didn't pan out, but take sure. that knowledge and put it somewhere else, it'll. You know, it's basically the thing where the trial and error comes in. But you're already using successful things that you know work, and we're just tailoring them. That's exactly right. And, you know, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be rich. And and in order to be rich, I just watched what rich people did and tried my own version of it. Now, maybe I couldn't do it at the degree that they were doing it because my resources were smaller. Uh, But I always had sort of a hustle to do those things. I was the kid on the school bus that would get my I begged my parents to take me to Costco or Sam's over the weekend. I'd buy candy and I'd take it and I'd sell it for a profit. Uh, I would buy Chick-fil-A sandwiches and sort of bring them in for lunch and sell them for $3 when I got them for a dollar. You know, I was always sort of uh, involved in a hustle. I always had money in my pocket. I was always able to do the things that I wanted to do. Uh, my family was generous, but, but you know, it was always a matching principle for us. Okay. So when I bought my first car, my father didn't like stroke a check and say, here's your car. He said, Whatever you bring me on your 16th birthday, I will match and you can get the car that you like. And so, Magnus, my first car was a BMW. 
because I hustled my butt off (laughs) for years to have enough money to buy used BMW. You know, when I, when I came to my dad, he was very unhappy with that (laughs) because it was a bigger check than he thought he was going to have to write. Um, but I drove the wheels off that car and we sold that car for what I paid for it. My portion of what I paid for it uh, five years later. So, you know, that it's just a different uh, sort of dynamic in, in learning how to hustle and get my deals done and do what I saw rich people doing. Now, you brought up a good point there. Even though it's a very wide and ambiguous term, rich, what, what does rich mean to you? So I think that definition has definitely uh, evolved over time uh, for me. I don't think I could have told you when I was in the sixth grade why I wanted to be rich, except to have things. You know, I wanted to have a a helicopter or a Lamborghini. You know, I remember being in the eighth grade thinking I could buy a house or a Lamborghini. Well, gosh, a Lamborghini is the way to go. You know, that was the thing that I would, you know, aspire to grow up to, to own, of course, not thinking of where I would park it or where I would sleep. Um, so my definition has, has changed over time. Now I have uh, three children and the, you know, the definition of being wealthy to me now is having enough health, enough mental presence and enough opportunity uh, to share their interests when it is um, when it is fresh for them. And so, uh, you know, if I wake up one morning and I don't have to go punch a clock because, you know, my kid has a softball game or you know, it's my turn to take them to breakfast before we go to school or, um, you know, whatever that looks like, then that's, that's the kind of rich that I want to be. And it isn't tied to a number. And I used to think it was, I used to think it was, you have to have a million bucks to be rich or 10 million Mm -hmm. or something. And it isn't, I don't want to be rich as much as I want to be wealthy now. And I want to have wealthy just means I want to have more than I need. Um, And that's where I want to be right now. Okay. And now do you see talking talking to you now and then possibly talking to you like 10 years before would you have thought that the evolution of your path now would be would ever be where you're at 10 years ago yes 20 years ago no okay so 20 years ago i was going to be a titan of industry and you know, live in a big uh, uh, metropolis and that sort of thing. And because the way, you know, the things I was describing to you didn't play out the way I thought they would. Uh, I live in a very small town. Uh, we live a lot more conservatively uh, than I used to think was was ever going to be possible. I'll tell you one of the ways that I have more than I need, which is my definition of wealth, is I spend less than I ever thought I would, you know, and I'm smart about the administration of debt and the purchase of things that become liabilities and, you know, those kinds of things. So, yeah, I think 20 years ago, I would have given you a different answer. 10 years ago, I was on the path. I had started to see the path to start building it out. Oh, excellent. Wow. Okay. And as with my, my path and your path, you know, we're, I'm working on a path because there's many different um, avenues as, as, uh, and definitions of success. My success right now is getting the information out to the people. I'm seeing that. I'm doing that. Uh, as to the wealth part of it, the wealth is growing. My my quality of life is getting better. The yeah. you know the the money will come after after putting the hard work in. I'm right because I, I'm with you where you were 20 years ago doing the hard work, and I'm right there now, and I'm seeing the benefits and the starting the payoffs for it. So. Yeah. 
And it's good because you can see a template, right? You can see that there's a path forward, uh, that you do this first and then this next and that sort of thing. I, just, I, I mentioned to you before the show started that I just had a lunch and coffee right. uh, with with three other guys in the same boat that I'm in with uh, same stage of life, roughly the same age, probably the same assets under management uh, for our families. We don't talk about numbers, but uh, that's probably the case. And, um, you know, we, we all have this affinity for mental models and, and looking for businesses that are, that are producing excess cash flow and all of those things. One of the guys made a comment that, um, Every wealthy person he knows has one thing in common and only one thing. And I was fascinated to hear this. I mean, I put my fork down. I leaned in. Uh, whole life insurance. And he polled ah. the group. Do you own whole life? And everybody at the table owned as much whole life insurance as we could possibly afford. I thought that was superbly interesting, you know. Um, so it's little things, little clues like that that I watch for to say, if he had said something different and that I didn't own, I would be, I would immediately be investigating that, wouldn't I? Yeah. So I, I find little clues like that to be really fascinating. Well, absolutely. Since you brought up whole life is my grandfather was teaching me that way back when growing up about the differences and whatnot. I'm like, Oh, all right. You know, it's there. I'll, I'll leave it there. It's, it's there and it's, it's paid off. And he took care of that with his generation so that my, the next generation after me could actually, profit you know not have to worry about it exactly about in so many in so many different ways exactly. um i i know we're probably coming up on a on a break here pretty soon oh, yes. but uh <laughs> i had a deal that hit uh last year that because i had a really well-funded uh, whole life policy that i had funded over the years i was able to write a check to buy a shopping center out of bankruptcy uh and foreclosure that i flipped and tripled that money in less than 12 months but I had to have that in order to do that. And, and my ability to do that started 15 years ago when I started making my premium payments. So gotcha. that's a, it's a little interesting spin on it. Oh, absolutely. And you are right. We are actually getting ready to take a break. The first half of the show is already you know over. And it yeah. feels like we're just getting started. We're just warming up to this whole topic, uh, especially the family business, uh, how you're exploring it, how... Uh, people can start doing these items and start tailoring them to what they, their specifications. But for the moment, Trey, we got to take a quick break. Uh, we're When we come back, we're going to get more in depth with this and cover some more topics. So everybody, cool. thank you for turning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I'm your host, Magnus Carter. Uh, my guest, Trey Taylor. Uh, we're talking about family businesses, uh, what it's like to own one, what, some of the major differences and how to go about being profitable and uh, profitable and successful with it. Uh, we're going to take this break and we're going to be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Everyone deserves the opportunity to have access to the knowledge to make their own choices when it comes to where their money goes. Listening to Making More Money for You with Magnus Carter will give you that access. Investing isn't just for the wealthy. Making More Money for You, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Making More Money for You with Magnus Carter. If you have any questions for Magnus or his guests, join us on the show at 866-472-5789. That's 866-472-5789. Now back to the show. Here is Magnus Carter. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Or if you're just tuning in, welcome to the show. This show, you know, this month of shows is basically almost the rock stars of the shows. Uh after lining them up, I couldn't have lined up a better um, series of shows if I had actually people telling me we're going to do these shows from the future <laughs> going backwards. Um, for that reason, I have Trey Taylor with me. Uh, we are taught we were the first half of the show went extremely fast. We were talking about being a home office and a family office business um, instead of being your typical corporation or. Um, single-minded entity that's just running running a business from day to day uh trey welcome back to the show thanks magnus uh, good to be with you enjoyed the first half conversation oh absolutely and we dropped so many nuggets of information so many golden nuggets of information there uh if you miss it definitely go back on a rebroadcast or you can see it or uh, listen to it on all the streaming services and i actually just found out it's on audible now i was looking checking my reviews of the books and whatnot it's actually on audible as well if you have audible and a and a uh, subscriber you can actually listen to it with your subscription and all your other paid subscriptions as well which is ridiculous but to get back to the show <laughs> uh we were talking about how you know 20 years ago and whole even getting into life insurance policy life insurance and insurance policies and you know being able to have assets to buy things how when you first started your own hustles way back when you were a kid how, how did you first realize that hey money has to make money money is not just going to come for me it's not going to be given to me and it's not going to actually earn money sitting in a bank honestly uh, it's weird that I have the exact answer for this, but I remember the first time that I realized uh, that you could make money without working. My grandfather had taken my brother and I in the summer to the beach 
And he, we were walking on the beach. We were going to get ready and go probably to an arcade and have food and that sort of thing, you know, just fun times. And I think I was probably eight years old, which means my brother was probably five years old. And, um, and my grandfather, he had one of those cell phones that looked like they were from Vietnam, like he was going to call in an airstrike, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and he was on the phone and I think he was talking to his office people or something. And he hung up the phone. And he says, well, boys, I made a thousand dollars today. And I said immediately, no, you didn't. You were with us all day. And he said, rich people don't work the way that you think people work. I made money and I was with you guys all day. And I remember thinking about that like almost obsessively after that to say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm fundamentally lazy. I don't have to go to work, you know, like you can do it up here. And I, I remember that that was important. And then um, it was also my grandfather uh, who had bought a car that he thought was interesting. So driving down the side of the road, it was a Volkswagen Carmagia that they don't oh make anymore. And, you know, a beautiful, like little quirky yeah. looking car from the 60s or 70s. And um, he bought it on a Monday and sold it for like a $3,000 profit on a Friday. And all he did was have it cleaned for his own enjoyment. And it was parked in front of his office and somebody came in and made him an offer on it. And I just remember those two events were saying to me, wait a minute, this is not like I think it is that I have to go get a job and, you know, type it. I, for whatever reason, I thought typewriters were how people made money, you know, like sit there and type all day long. And <laughs> that's how you made money. That's what I thought as a young kid. But that, those are the two events that sort of said that uh, was very powerful to me. And then the third event, my dad bought our home because he, uh, our first home, because he bought Home Depot stock at the IPO offer of $10. Oh and he my. sold it for $20. He made $10,000 and he put that down on our first home. Now, had he held that stock, as I was always fond of reminding him, you and I wouldn't know each other because I'd be vastly wealthy and I wouldn't uh, be talking to anybody <laughs> right now, you know? Um, but I remember that say, oh, you use money to buy things, really big things. And, you know, as a child, those things were sort of uh, always in the background for me thinking about stuff. Okay. Now, with the, the, that mentality as you were growing up and the time you were going to school and whatnot, how much of an impact did the societal and structural um, formation of, of the call of the schooling impact you on your decisions? Unfortunately, way more than it should have. Okay. What I should have done is watch the way that my parents and grandparents acted and not listen to them tell me how they thought I should act. Because, you know, it's a very uh, similar story around the country that the first generation comes from nothing and builds something. Right. The second generation typically works within that framework. And the third generation typically loses it. Is the, is, the, is the meme that sort of goes around. But in reality, what happens is the third generation typically, second to third generation typically go on to become a, they, they go into a profession, law, medicine, engineering, something of that nature. And that's very much what my family, um, uh, I don't want to say pushed, it was what I wanted as well, but they sort of wanted that for me. And so uh, in, in, in going on that journey, what I wish they had said was, hey, you have a really good mind for math and business uh, and business models and dissecting things uh, and putting them back together again. You should, you know, really focus yourself on entrepreneurialism and business. That's what they should have said to me. 
they didn't want me to be at the risk of not having a steady paycheck with health insurance and dental mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. Okay. And so that's how they encouraged me to do. I wish that I had known that there was a different way. I wish I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad at, at eight years of age instead of 38 or whatever it was. <laughs> right. You know, uh, I wish I had understood and trusted myself more uh, to do uh, deals and create wealth. I'm very much a proponent of that with my own kids. So this okay. Christmas, both of my kids are getting LLCs for Christmas. And we will buy a, a house and fix and flip it together inside those LLCs. They will create a wealth. They both have whole life policies that we bought when they were born. Okay. Uh, and they will use the money, the cash value of those policies to buy the homes. And we will do that in a very safe manner so that they can see that this is how you build wealth. It's one way that you build wealth. Well, you're right, one way. And did you notice when you started getting into and seeing the the real aspects of being an entrepreneur and owning a business that the fears that were cast upon you really weren't fears, just unknown items? Yes, uh, although I, I still tremble a bit before I make the leap. Uh, even today. So I think, uh, I think it's something that, you know, it's, it's very much good proof that you can love somebody and tell them the wrong thing. Uh, and what you tell them stays with them for a really long time. Uh, so I'm in the habit of, uh, people that work for me of telling them very often that there's nothing you can break that I can't fix. So let's take intelligent risks. You know, those risks should pay off more than they don't pay off, but they don't have to pay off every time. Um, so I wish I had been, uh, gifted that in a little bit different way than I was. I can, I can attest with that, uh, because I, I have was talked out of many opportunities because of doing that and looking back at those opportunities that I took, that I missed, <laughs> uh, it's a very, it's not really bitter, but it's more or less. I won't put that decision-making power into somebody else. Uh, I'll keep that myself. And then if it's on me, it's on me. And that's all the only person that can change that is myself, not anybody yeah. else to, to do that. Now, yeah, well have you, and with that type of, thank you very much. Uh, but when we, when you start now, you're bringing your children into this, they're, they're going to be doing LLCs. They're going to be doing now. Will you, allow them to make the mistakes that could pause allow them to make mistakes i should say we'll start with that yeah so when i taught my kids to ride a bike i let them fall off the bike okay i didn't kick the bike out from under them to see how they would deal with it right so uh and i ran alongside the bike to make sure that they were balanced enough and then i made the training wheels a little uneven so that they learned how to you know zig and zag a little bit back and forth until they became the ones uh to ride the bike uh so that's the process that we're in now at some point will they fall victim to some um idea of excess like hey dad i did one deal i can do 50 next which is often what happens um, then I'll be there as a cautionary voice to say, why don't we, you know, let's walk, uh, let's crawl, walk and run uh, instead of trying to fly. So, yeah, I think uh, I think we'll do that. But I'll let them make um, uh, mistakes, but not catastrophic mistakes. OK, nothing, nothing that would be harmful to their future, but Correct. a good learning experience in the short term. 
Yes, exactly right. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's, um, I, you know, I was given a little bit of that opportunity, but as we talked about is I was actually going, I chose the professional path. Um, tired of the professional path, honestly. <laughs> and that's yeah. where the, you know, um, it's, it's good for a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. It's what they choose. It's what they like. It's, um, what they're, I hate to say it comfortable with. I'm tired of it being is, comfortable. You're exactly right. It's a comfortableness that comes with something that is small and limited that we can master without fear. And that's where the danger sets in. I spoke to a group in February of 160 dentists. Okay. That's as professional as you can get a room. Right. Uh, they all had advanced degrees. They all had college degrees. They all had dental school degrees. Some of them have even more education than that. Um, and they were all wage slaves. To some extent, they were all dependent on what they did with their hands every single day. If they didn't show up, they didn't get paid. Tell me the difference except in magnitude of that and a guy that digs ditches or cleans pools for a living, right? Not that there's anything wrong with any of those professions, any of those activities, but the difference in you know wanting to be a professional should be that you have more wealth, more freedom, more ability to do the things that spark your heart rather than the things that you have to do to keep food on the table. And I was stunned in that group, um, which was a group oriented towards breaking free of that. I was stunned in that group how many of them were in that mindset. Wow. That's, well, that's what society wants us to do. So we keep uh, performing, if you will, and doing our daily jobs and instead of free thinkers and, keeping keeping an open mind and actually making money because if everybody knew these tips tricks and had the ambition to do that people wouldn't be doing that type of work as well that that's exactly right and i'll tell you the gateway drug for all of it is stuff right (laughs) yeah it and, and and the quote that i love it comes from the movie fight or the book fight club and the movie fight club the things we own end up owning us Yes. And every time I want to make a big new purchase, I, I say to myself, am I going to want that six months from now when I have to make a monthly payment on it mm-hmm. as much as I want it right now? And I talk myself out of it more now than I used to, probably still not as much as I should. Uh, but just that acquisition of a long-term obligation for a short-term benefit is something that I really have to think through and justify. Okay. Well, I do remember an old comedian way back I'm talking probably late 80s, early 90s that did the his skit on stuff. George Carlin. George Carlin. Yeah, it was George yeah. Carlin. You're right. Yeah. Um, why do we get a job to buy stuff? We buy a house to buy stuff. We buy a bigger. We, well, why do we buy a bigger house to buy more stuff? Why do we buy yeah. a car to transport the stuff? <laughs> it, yeah. it, it's it's a never, never ending cycle. Yeah, it's funny. I have a, a friend that always says, um, uh, don't go broke to appear to broke people as if you're not broke. (laughs) And I love it because he's right. I see so many people saying, well, you know, I'm going to buy the latest and greatest, whatever it happens to be. And again, I'm not saying like, don't enjoy what you work for. Right. Um, That's the point, but I'm saying be, be smart and intelligent about it. Oh, absolutely. And I had a mastermind meeting with my uh with my other authors that i'm in with um that i did the course with and whatnot and 
one the lady that was asking asked a very good question. She's like, "Do you are your expe- expectations on point for what you're getting right now of what you're doing?" I'm like, and honestly, besides not talking about it, after thinking about it all day, I answered it very bitterly because I didn't see, I didn't get the, I don't have the instant gratification of. I already put the work in and I'm seeing the money back from it. I'm still, we're still in the hustle stage. So as I sat here and thought about it, even though it's a, it's a business, I'm going to turn this into a family business or or actually um, as as it starts growing is I shouldn't have any expectations right now. I should see goals and see things that I want it to happen because a year ago, this was not possible. Last year was the first, first year I, I, I wrote the book and published it. Then the second book came six months after that, the show came and now I'm right here right now at the end of the year with over 9,000 listens with seven and a half, close to eight months worth of shows. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's uh, I know, you know, the speaker, Les Brown, but Les has a phrase where he says, your success is none of your business. Exactly. Stop focusing on the success. Do the work. The success follows, it's a byproduct. It can only be a byproduct. And I think the danger in the last, that I've noticed in the last 10 years has been with the rise of social media, you can look like a success without being a success. That's dangerous. Yeah. You're right. And the social media takes away from us. Well, especially with success. Your book, what the CEO, three things a good CEO does, you know, that is one of them that's actually listed in there. Of actually, <laughs> one of the things uh, there's good the good CEOs that you have in your book that do a fantastic job, but are overworked, overextended, and not concentrating on the pillars that you wrote the book upon. Right, exactly right. Yeah. So, so the book is a, a CEO only does three things, right. and you know I know that CEOs have to do lists that are a lot longer than three items. I understand that, mm-hmm. but the point of the book is to say if you are doing, if you're touching. If you are manufacturing, if you are, are, are just involved with every aspect of your business, we have been taught that that is a virtue. But what I will prove to you time and again is that your presence in all things in your business is a limiter on that business. And so the more you can focus on the three most important things that CEOs do because they're the only ones that can do it, which is work on the culture, work on the people, and work on the numbers. You're the only one that can do those three things uh, that has the authority and the responsibility for those three things. Uh, when you focus on those things and get them satisfied, then uh, then reserve your efforts for the things that need help uh, throughout the rest of the business. Uh, that's when we start to see businesses really, really grow. And um, the book's message has been received far in excess of what my expectations ever were. Absolutely. And reading some of your reviews on it, there's countless reviews on the book and they're all positive. I have maybe there's what one or two, like one or two star ones, but you can tell after reading them, they weren't, they were looking at something just to, to get out there that something happened to them. It wasn't about the book. Or I, what the I book felt was. the same way. So I'm glad to hear you say that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've I, got people that I really respect. Gary Keller from Keller Williams said, this book is uh, now on my desk with the top five books that I've ever read for my career. 
I mean, gosh, that was so important. Grant Cardone read it and said, Trey's the smartest guy in the room. I mean, he knows something about business formation. Kevin Harrington, who they built the Shark Tank concept around, said, this book is what I wish I had the first day I started my business. And, you know, that's not testament to me. It's testament to the fact that we all sort of recognize that when you focus, you get better results. And when you limit the focus, you get even even better results with less distractions in a better time frame. Correct. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with with the book, with what you're saying. And we all get in our own way about things. It's like, well, this book is saying this, but um, of course our attitude or macho-ness or whatever you want to call it thinks they can do better than it and try something off the beaten path. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. And then if it doesn't work, then we get bitter. We get frustrated. We get, it goes down that giant slope really quick. Yes, but, it can do. If, if we choose to let that be the way that we see it. Absolutely. We have a value in our, in our business. We have 13 core values called the B attitudes. And, um, and number eight is to, uh, sorry, number 10 is to be intrepid, which means to take a risk. Okay. And to realize that a risk usually will end in some form of some form of failure, mm-hmm. unless we take a lesson and a learning from what that failure was, so that we fail forward at all times. Absolutely, and then it's not really a failure; it's a learning experience. Exactly, and, and any money that you spend to learn is called tuition, <laughs> not a loss. Yeah. You're right. Uh, you're right about that. And your book—it doesn't matter the size of the company. It all it it could be a like we're talking about the small mom and pop shops, the small families, the medium families, all the way up to the corporate level. Folks are reading this, and it's been proven to work. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm I'm blown away by the success of the book. It's the most gifted book amongst Inc. Five Thousand CEOs. Uh, I did something called Secret Mastermind, where the organizer brings fifty. Um, CEOs and CFOs of Fortune 50 companies together, 50 and 100 companies together. And uh, the first day of the event, they bring the speaker in who has written a book. Everyone shows up, has read the book. And the first question is, is this relevant? And they ask that right in front of the speaker. And I tell you, my knees were knocking because I've never run a Fortune 50 business, right? right? I don't know if that's of interest to them or not. And almost unanimously, the room said, yes, I would be a better CEO if I did these three things very intentionally every day. Not that I could sort of punch in at eight o'clock, do those three things and leave at 830. That's not the point of the book, but to focus your efforts on those three things where only you can move the needle to the extent that it needs to be moved. That's the real message of the book. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's mind blowing. If we take it down, instead of looking all around, uh, to everybody, all of our friends, all the, all of our peers and whatnot, we actually focus on what we're trying to get done. It would actually, you'd see so much more success. And I, I do see that as well. I, I'm, I do, I have to put the blinders on every now and then, uh, just, just to reca- recalibrate. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And, and what I do is I work with, um, CEO clients a lot in my consulting business to say, what are you touching that you shouldn't be? You know, how much money did you make last year? Divide that by a normal work year number of hours. And anything that comes in below that number. So if you, you know, if you make 
$600 an hour, $100 an hour, whatever. Why are you doing things that somebody who you pay $10 an hour could do? It doesn't make sense. So I have a client um, who chooses the break room coffee creamer flavors, right? That's not something a CEO should be doing. And here's the other clue. He gets it wrong. He orders the stuff that he likes, not that everybody likes. But a a $10 an hour employee or somebody who's more suited to that would choose something that everybody likes. So it's amazing to me how often we we sort of get it wrong when we when we do those kinds of activities. Oh, I yes, especially the wow. We got to wrap this up. We're going to wind down a little bit. I'll have this one quick story. Is the there was a company that I used to work for. There was an east and west coast office, completely polar opposites on how they ran the business. West coast office got everything. They got their cars washed. They got um, masseuses coming in. They had uh, candy. They had all this food. They had everything. The East Coast office where I was at, nothing. We were lucky if we had a, a holiday dinner. And they were wondering why there was so much less productivity between both of them. And you're right. It's stay out of it. Let Let the people that know the people make those choices. Make those choices. That's right. Exactly. That's the benefit of focus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Trey, I I, <laughs> I hate to say it, but we're out of time. <laughs> it was fast, Magnus. It was. It goes fast. It, it did go fast, but it was quality. There was a lot of quality here. Uh, a lot of uh, your book, your experience, uh, you, you in general, of of all talking, taking taking the time out of your day to help the listeners out there that want to be better, that actually want to um, succeed further and get the tools and tips they need to do this. Uh, Speaking of that, where can they find you in case they have any questions or if they, uh, your book, especially. Yeah, the book's on Amazon and CEO only does three things. Um, The book has a website at CEO only does three things.com. My personal website is trey-taylor.com. I do a newsletter that you can sign up for at uh, plantyourflag.live. And uh, my Twitter handle is Trey Taylor CEO. Awesome. I appreciate your time and thank you for being on the show, Trey. Uh, Thanks, Magnus. Good to see you. Good seeing you as well. This, well, next week, everybody, just a little taste of what we're doing next week is it's the last show of this of the year of 2022 already. I cannot believe this. And I have a very special guest that I've got got to uh, get got to know the privilege of knowing over the last couple of weeks is I have Justine Pogroski from Million Dollar Branders to be on the show, and we're going to talk about taking your brand that we learned about or personal brand or brand you have now, and we're going to take it to the next level and get some information and some wisdom on how to actually grow that into being an empire. And putting the work in to do so. I couldn't think of a better way f- for this year to end with my guest this month. Trey, thank you for sh- <laughs> being on the show with me and your time. And everybody, enjoy the holidays. Uh, be safe out there. Uh, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening to Making More Money for You with Magnus Carter on the Voice America Business Channel. We look forward to the next show where we will be making more money for you. Until then, have a fantastic week.